Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of The 33 Strategies of War by Robert Greene, one of our favorite authors, and he's done it again with another phenomenal book. And this is only part one. We couldn't do this in one part. This is going to be a three-parter just because it's so massive. There's 33 strategies. We'll cover uh, almost half of them in this, but they're just, they're just so much green green juice. Yeah, I didn't know how important this book was until you read it, and hopefully you'll be the same after you hear some of these strategies and how you can apply it to all the different situations that will pop up for you. We live in a culture that promotes democratic values, being fair to one and all, the importance of fitting into a group, knowing how to cooperate with other people. And then we're taught from very early on in life that those who are outwardly combative and aggressive, they pay a social price and that price is unpopularity and isolation. So we promote these values of harmony and cooperation and they really perpetuate in society in these really subtle and maybe not so subtle ways. Like a lot of the books we cover on how to be successful in life, it's all about just being pleasant and having this peaceful exterior and this is really the only way to get ahead in the world. But the problem for us is that we're trained and prepared for all the peace times and we're really never prepared for what confronts us in the real world and that's war in certain occasions. Yeah, war exists on many levels. Most obvious is if you've got some kind of rival. The world is becoming increasingly competitive, a little bit nasty. If you think about it, there's really war in politics, business, the arts. We face opponents who will do almost anything to gain an edge. Most importantly, there's these, these battles uh, with people not only who we're against, but also people who we think are supposedly on our side. Yeah, and if we're being naive, we might completely miss that people are being competitive because a lot of the time, people are just outwardly projecting this friendly and agreeable nature but who are really just sabotaging us behind the scenes. So everything on the surface seems peaceful enough, but just below it, it is every man and woman. They're out for themselves in this world. So war, there's the obvious, you know, nations going to war. But Robert Greene is saying that everybody really is going to war every single day in some way or another. And he says that the ideal to aim for should be that of the strategic warrior. It's a man or woman who manages difficult situations through deft and intelligent maneuvering. Many psychologists and sociologists have argued that it's actually through conflict that problems are often solved and real differences reconciled, and our successes and failure in life can be traced to how well we deal with these inevitable conflicts and what confront our society. So if we're never really trained to handle these conflicts and it sometimes be strategic within them, then we're never going to get the benefits what you know conflicts can bring. Yeah, the strategic warrior operates much differently to the normal person. They think ahead. They think of long-term goals. They decide which fights to fight and which fights to avoid. And they also know which ones are inevitable so they know when they have to go to war. They know how to control themselves. They know how to channel their emotions in the correct way. And when forced to fight, they do so indirectly and with subtle maneuvers. Yeah, I think this is one of the really important parts of the book. It's not all about going out there and just overtly defeating someone. Sometimes the best strategy of war or a lot of times is just to find ways that you can subtly maneuver in the background. So you're avoiding war because war is going to be costly in terms of you know emotions and political goodwill and friendships and all these sorts of things. Yeah, if you think one strategy of war, I don't think it's actually a strategy in the book. We just go, go full war front on, attack, attack, attack. But Robert Greene, he's got 33 strategies of war. So there's obviously many, many more ways to do it than just the obvious. Yeah, so Mahatma Gandhi for example, you might think, hey, he's not a strategic warrior. He's not someone who's going to go out there and slaughter someone. But he really <laughs> is one of the most strategic people of all time because he turned nonviolence as his strategy into a greatest weapon for social change. And this one weapon he had, he was able to kick out the British overlords out of India who had crippled them for centuries. So 
This one strategy was so powerful and it was through non-violence rather than violence. You can flick on the TV and at any week throughout the year, you can hear about the wars that are going on around you. And you might think that that's something else for somebody else to worry about. But as Big Greeno is saying, war is not something that's separate from the rest of society. Everybody is going into war. It's something that we need to learn, something we need to understand, something we need to bring a better approach to. Instead of resisting the pull of strategy that comes to war or thinking that it's just beneath you and you're not that type of person, it's better to confront its necessity at some occasions in life. Because if you ignore this in your life, you're going to end up in these endless conflicts and battles and defeats and you'll just be confused about what the hell just happened to you. So in the next three episodes, we're going to cover this phenomenal book and break it up into three different parts. Firstly, in this episode, we're going to be covering offensive warfare in the second episode, Defensive Warfare, and then we'll finish it off with the third episode on Tactical Warfare. Life is endless battle and conflict, and you cannot fight effectively if you cannot identify your enemies. People are subtle and evasive, disguising their intentions, pretending to be on your side, so you need clarity. You need to learn to smoke out your enemies, to spot them by the signs and the patterns that reveal hostility, and once you have them in your sights... Inwardly declare war. Don't be naive because with some enemies, there can be no compromise, no middle ground. Mm, Absolutely. So life is a battle and struggle and you're going to constantly find yourself facing bad situations, whether it be your work with your boss, colleagues, destructive relationships with friends, sometimes family, dangerous engagements. How you confront all these difficulties will determine your fate in life and ultimately your destination of where you're going to go. As As Xenophon said... Now, I assume that's not Nick Xenophon, the South well, Australian that's what my mind uh, That's what my mind always thought. <laughs> I, think, I think it must be some ancient Greek master. We'll go with that. It seems more weighty to come from him than to come from Nick Xenophon. But as big old Xenophon said, your obstacles are not rivers, not mountains, not other people. Your obstacle is yourself. Think of yourself as always about to go into battle. Everything depends on your frame of mind and how you go about the world. So a shift of this perspective can transform you into this passive person who might be the occasional victim, you might be confused half the time, and you turn into a motivated and creative fighter, recognizing the times that it is it is time to fight. In the early 1970s, the British political system, they're in this comfortable pattern. The Labour Party would win, the next time the Conservatives would win, they just flip back and forth uh, between the two. And the two parties really came to resemble each other. They just sort of became much of a muchness. They were quite similar to each other. They'd flip back and forth. It was quite comfortable. It was quite happy. But then the Conservatives lost in 1974, and they kind of wanted to shake things up. There was a, a leadership spill, and Margaret Thatcher was the one who thrust herself into taking power of the Conservative Party. So she was very different. Where everyone was moving toward the centre, she went the other way. She railed against the socialist system, rallying up, I guess, all the people, the conservatives on the right, up against the left. And and she said that the socialist system choked all initiative in the economy and it was responsible for the decline of their economy. The unions went on strike and Thatcher went on the warpath. She linked the strikes with the then current PM saying it's this person's fault that our economy's cooked, that everyone's going on strike, that everybody wants to be treated too nicely. The Conservative Party were telling her, hang on, we we got to sort of keep everyone on mm. side here. You know, don't go too crazy. We don't want to frighten voters off. But she just kept going. She kept going deeper and deeper and deeper and further and further and further, creating, I guess, a, a rift, creating an us against them. And this us against them really rallied the troops and was the thing that bowled over all the voters and she ended up PM. And then Thatcher went harder than ever before. You probably see a few subtleties and similarities to today on both sides of politics. 
um, having that us versus them mentality and it really stabilizes a certain base of political support. Yeah, I don't think you need to think too hard about that one um, to think about how a similar sort of strategies have worked in more recent times. Your enemies, those who stand sharply against you, will help you forge a support base that will not desert you. So by building up an enemy, by saying, here, we're on this side, there on that side, it really strengthens your side. Being in the center, it's a realm of compromise. I think most of us probably feel a bit more comfortable in the center because you're not really hurting the feelings of anyone. But in a sense, it can be an important skill just getting along with everyone or trying to be get, getting along with everyone. But it comes with danger because you're always seeking the path of least resistance and you might forget who you are and what your values are as you sink to the center with everyone else. Instead of just taking the easy way, taking the bit, being in the middle, trying to please everyone, sometimes you need to see yourself as a fighter. You need to position yourself as an outsider surrounded by enemies, constantly in battle to keep you strong. So strategy one we're covering in this episode is declare war on your enemies. This is important because today we live in an era in which people, they're not very hostile directly. So the rules of engagement, whether it be social, political, military, they've all changed and so must the notion of the enemy. So in the past when it was really direct and having an upfront enemy, you know who exactly what your enemies were. In a sense, it was blessing because you knew exactly what you were up against. But today, it's a lot more subtle. So it's very hard to understand who your enemies are out there, the ones who are putting on these subtle maneuvers to, to push you aside. The word enemy coming from the Latin inimicus, close enough, means that. N- not a friend. It's kind of been demonized. It's sort of been popularized saying enemy. It's obviously the, the very evil person that's really opposed to you. But what Big Old Greeno is saying is that we shouldn't just view those people as our enemies, the obvious ones. We should also widen our concept of enemy to include anybody, even those within your group, that may be working against you in some kind of subtle way. Yeah, it's not the best thing. Like you'd put your hand up and say, hey, I've got a lot of friends and you would feel pretty proud of yourself. You've got a lot of friends. But if you tell... <laughs> tell someone, hey, I've got a lot of enemies, they're probably going to think something's wrong with you. But if you say that to Greeno, he'll, he'll nod his head in approval and say, well that. done, mate, you're getting, you're getting my book. <laughs> he would absolutely love that. He says, you don't want to be paranoid and just thinking everybody's against you, everybody's out to get you. But you've got to start to realize that nobody's attacking you head on anymore. That's just not how war is conducted these days. It's always hidden. It's always indirect. It's always subtle. It's always maneuvers. So you've got to try to identify these things, the less obvious enemies within your group. When I first read this book, light bulbs went off constantly about just thinking about the people who are just subtly maneuvering to push you aside and do things. But once you understand who they are and they're actually maybe working against you, then you can start deploying this strategy and other strategies that are coming up. One of these strategies might actually turn this enemy into a friend because obviously that's going to be a much better thing. Or you can go the other way and actually find a way to destroy the person <laughs> and knock them out. Well, it's probably better if, you, if you've got like a, someone who thinks a friend but is really a, a bit of an enemy, it's probably better to go to one extreme or the other. Then at least you know what you're dealing with. You can uncover their tactical maneuvers against you and, and turn them into a full-blown enemy or you can uncover that and say, what's going on? Let's be friends instead. Absolutely. So the only way to break out of the dynamic of just being a naive victim is just to confront it. Don't repress your anger and avoid the person who's threatening you. These kind of strategies where you're just like trying to get away from it and hide from it, it's going to spell ruin and it might be your overall demise. So avoidance of conflict, it might become a habit and you'll lose your taste for battle and people are going to just walk over you for the rest of your mm. life. Yeah, no, you don't want that. Child psychologist Jean Piaget you pronounce these well. I might leave these ones with you. Well done. Uh, 
I think it's a he. He saw conflict as a critical part of mental development. So during an upbringing, if it's just all rosy and everything goes your way, it's well, it's obviously it's anti fragile. Yeah, when everything mm. goes really well, then there's going to be trouble brewing later on. But you need conflict, you need struggles, you need battle to strengthen you so that you're ready for the bigger battles that come later on. So something that strengthens you, but also enemies give you a standard to judge yourself. If you remember Joe Fraser, he was really what made Muhammad Ali into a great fighter. If that rivalry wasn't there, Muhammad Ali might not have been known as the best of all time. So a tough opponent will bring out the best in you, and this is a good thing. So you need to remember that there are always people out there who are more aggressive, more devious, and more ruthless than you are, and it's inevitable that somebody like this is going to cross your path. The default setting for you, like it was for me, and maybe you as well, Astro, might just be try and compromise with them and avoid the difficulties that come with conflict. But in reality, their desires have no limit and they might be just trying to disarm you behind the scenes. So with some people, you have to harden yourself and recognize there is no middle ground and no hope for conciliation. For this aggressive, devious, ruthless opponent, your uh, innate need or desire to compromise and find the middle ground is something they're going to use against you. It's a sign of weakness. They know that you're going to be a bit of a pushover and they know that they'll say, okay, let's compromise. But then before you know it, they're going to be taking 100% of what they want and giving you 0% of what you want. Yeah, you don't want that. You are the last line of your own defense. So, you got to take responsibility for these times of war. And this is the first strategy. Declare war on your enemies. In 1605, Japan, Miyamoto Musashi, he was a samurai who made himself a swordsman at the age of 21. And he was challenged to a duel by Matashiro, who came from the Yoshioko family, and they were a clan known for their swordsmanship because earlier that year, Musashi had defeated Matashiro's father in a duel. He killed his uncle in another duel, and now the Yoshioko family, they want a revenge. They've had enough of Musashi, and everyone was telling Musashi, mate, don't do it. You're up against the Yoshioko family. They're <laughs> going to they're gonna kick your ass, but Musashi, he's 21, right? He's confident, and he thinks he's, he's a world killer. So, he went out and did it alone. Yeah, all of his mates said, oh, this is a trap. We'll go with you and back you up just in case shit goes wild. But he was like, nah, I got this. What he did was, uh, so when Musashi first... Uh, fought against his dude's dad and against his uncle. He showed up unrespectfully late. This time though, he mixed it up and he came super early and he hid in the trees. From this hidden vantage point, he actually saw Matashi Shiro arrive and he saw that he brought a small army with him. So he's brought these 15, 20 blokes for this one-on-one duel. And they said to, he heard them saying, you know, Masashi, oh, he's always late. He's going to be late as usual. This is perfect. He's not going to trick us this time. And they all lay down in the grass ready to ambush him. Yeah, so they were ready for... Musashi to rock up late and now it's going to jump out of the grass. But something very different happened. Musashi, he was ready for them. He just saw them just like thinking they're so smart, just lying <laughs> down in the grass ready to surprise him. He's already up in the trees, <laughs> right? So at this stage, he jumped down off the trees very quickly to the surprise of everyone and said, I've been waiting long enough. Draw your sword. And in one swift stroke, he ran up and he killed Matashiro. And then they made very quick work of the, the rest of the army just lying down in the grass, not doing a hell of a lot. <laughs> the other guys were lying down. They'd literally just lay down and he realized that was a perfect time to use the element of surprise. They popped up slowly one by one and he just took them all down. Literally one by one, one stroke each. He was standing off at an angle, ready to tackle them. He didn't stand in the middle where they were expecting to surround him and ambush him. He went off to the side and just took him down one by one. And literally in a matter of seconds, he was just slitting throats and really established himself as really Japan's greatest swordsman by killing the father, the uncle, and now the son. So now he's got his reputation. He was roaming the countryside looking for suitable challenges. 
And in one town, he came across this undefeated warrior who also had a phenomenal reputation. And this bloke was called Biken. And his weapon was a sickle in one hand and a long chain with a steel ball on the other. Now, you can imagine how scary this kind of weapon yeah. was. And Musashi's like, all right, if I'm battling you, I need to see you in action, mate. Can you can you just show me how you do your stuff? <laughs> and uh, Biken, of course, said no. The only way no you're going to see that is if you challenge me to a duel. Yeah. Again, Musashi's mates were like, come on, man. This guy's undefeated. He's got shit you've never seen before. Oh. He's got a sickle and he's got a ball and chain. You've got this boring old sword. Don't do it. Stay safe. Walk away. But of course, Musashi was like, no, I'm going to take him down this time. And so everybody who thought these weapons were unbeatable, big old Biken... He'd start swinging his big ball and chain. He'd swing it. He'd build the velocity. He'd build it up. He'd build it up. He'd then sling it right at their face. And as they're trying to block it with their sword, then he'd run up and slice them with the sickle. But what Masashi did was he brought two swords. He brought a long sword and a short sword, and he charged straight away. While everybody else is just fucking standing back and waiting, swinging, 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 swinging. Masashi's like, I'm not just going to let him build up his massive weapon. I'm going to get right in there before he even has time to build it up. So he sprinted forward and looking for an opening, he knocked him off balance with the short sword, put him on the back foot, and then the longer sword, he put a big thrust right through Biken's neck and he was gone skis. <laughs> so that poor undefeated Biken, he's just had his first defeat and his last defeat as well because that's game over for old Biken. Now he's still got, he's, he's developing one hell of a reputation now. He already had one, he now destroyed Biken. And now a few years later, there was another person, this gun rule, and he was the last person you know, to, to challenge to just seal the fate as Japan's best swordspersons of all time. So this was Musashi's ultimate test. Yeah, Sasaki Gunryu, he had this uh, really, really long sword that there was like myths going around that it possessed some like dragon inside of it, some mystical warrior's essence that was basically this undefeatable sword. And Masashi said, "Okay, let's let's go. Let's have a fight on your island. I'll, I'll roll up one morning. Uh, you be ready." And that whole island was then packed of people. They'd heard mm. the legends of Sasaki. They'd heard the legends of Musashi, and they're like, "Okay, let's let's see the biggest fight of all time." On the dot. Be, <laughs> yeah. be there, be there, fair and square. Eight o'clock on your island. Yeah. And then the morning came. Eight o'clock went past. <laughs> Musashi, he wasn't he wasn't on time this time. Yeah. He, he rocked up on one of his little boats, little canoes, and uh, he hopped onto the sand and with his oar. And Gunyaru had his big long sword and was expecting Musashi, this creative fighting warrior. And he just sees him rock up. He's looking in the sky. He looks a bit lost and, and dazed and just carrying this wooden oar and, and thinking, what the hell is this kid doing? <laughs> he had like a dirty towel wrapped around his head as a headband. He had a wooden oar instead of his nice metal sword. And uh, as you say, he was just dazed. Everyone thought maybe he'd had some kind of mental breakdown. He'd completely lost the plot. But then, so Gunryu says, what's going on? Why are you so late? You broke your promise. Are you frightened to fight me? But Masashi, he said nothing. He took a step closer. He was ready to fight. Big old Gunryu pulls out his long sword. And Masashi said, well, you've just sealed your own fate, mate. It's game over now. And so Gunryu was pretty pissed off and ready for the battle. So Masashi, he, it turned out he didn't just have an oar. He'd actually sharpened the, the length of it. And because it was wooden, it was much lighter and he could carry a much longer weapon than the other guy's sword. So he ran up to him with full pace and then the sharpened sword just went through this guy's neck. The long sword didn't, in, didn't catch him at all. And from that moment on, after winning this duel, he's considered the greatest swordsman without peer. 
So strategy of war number two is do not fight the last war. And the last war is in the previous war. So Miyamoto Musashi, he won all his duels for one reason, and that was that he adapted his strategy to his opponent and to the circumstances every single time. He didn't take in the lessons he'd learned from the previous war and fight that same war. He was fighting a different war every single time. If you think about the first war, uh, Matashikido, he arrived extremely early, something he'd never done before and his opponents weren't expecting. And then for the next opponent, Biken, you know, who Biken could have guessed what Musashi was going to do. But Musashi, this time, he brought two swords and created his space, something he'd never done before. Then finally, with Ganyuru, it was to infuriate and humiliate his haughty opponent. Um, and he brought a wooden sword, arrived late, and pretending not to care. And that's how he defeated this one. All of Masashi's opponents depended on brilliant techniques, flashy swords, or their unorthodox weaponry. And they basically were doing the same thing every time, but that's the same as fighting the last war. Instead of responding to the moment, they relied on their training or their technology or what had worked before. Their past successes had worked for them. So they're like, mm-hmm. okay, cool. That's my, that's my technique. That's my tactic. I've practiced this. This is what I'm going to do again. So Musashi would grasp the essence of strategy, turns their rigidity into their downfall. This bit probably throws me back a bit to uh, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. What's the say mm-hmm. in the back? If you are copying people like Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, or Steve Jobs, if you're following them and doing exactly what they did, then you're not actually copying what they did because they didn't copy anyone. Mm. So if you're going to copy them, you need to have a new strategy that no one's ever seen before. That's right. Big old Musashi's first consideration in any battle was always thinking, what will this particular opponent, what will catch them by surprise? He always wanted to surprise them, throw them off balance. He would be purely anchored in the moment. And while they're thinking about their training and thinking about what they're meant to be doing, he's just responding in the present and ready to improvise whatever his next action would be. From his whole toolkit, he's got all these different options, and he's going to pull out the right one at the right time, whereas they're just pulling out the hammer to bang the nail every single time. So strategy, it's not a question of learning a series of moves or ideas, following a recipe, reading a bunch of books or 115 books in one. (laughs) Um, Victory has no magic formula. So ideas are merely nutrients for the soil. I really like that metaphor. Ideas are just nutrients for the soil and maybe having so many ideas baked in the background, what pops up out of the soil in the Mm -hmm. present moment might be a brilliant strategy. Yeah, looking back on some kind of unpleasant or disagreeable experience, some loss that you've had in a previous war, you inevitably thought, oh, if only I'd done X instead of Y, or if only I'd done this, I could have won. But the problem is not that we think of the solution when it's too late. The problem is that we imagine it was knowledge that was lacking. We thought if only we'd known more, we could have got there. Like George Costanza with the comeback, the ocean called, they're out of shrimp. Mm. He, was, he wasn't in the moment. He wasn't ready. He didn't, couldn't come up with any good comeback. It wasn't until in the car much later that he finally came up with that, that killer line. And he literally did the definition of trying to fight the last war. He literally tried to recreate the exact same war. Uh, he loaded the, the gob up with shrimp waited for Riley to deliver that line. The ocean called, they're out of shrimp, and he came ready with that killer comeback. The jerk store called, and they're running out of you. But of course, Riley wasn't fighting the last war like big old George was. Riley was present. He was in the moment. He was adaptable. He was coming with a new strategy. He said, well, what does it matter? You're their all-time bestseller. And George was stuck in that last war. He had nothing left except to say that he'd uh, slept with the bloke's wife, but the bloke's wife had been a... A coma anyway, you know, he delivered a good comeback, but he still got done afterwards anyway. Yeah, you lost me there, mate. I, <laughs> one I'll know that you don't know is probably the, uh, the UFC context as well. Yeah, yeah, t- a lot of UFC idea. fighters who bring in a new strategy that no one's ever seen before, a lot of them win in, in that way. I remember Dustin Poirier, the first time he uh, defeated 
Conor McGregor. Everyone thought Dustin Poirier was going to come out with his boxing strategy and that's all he could do. Conor McGregor, because he had a few years out of the game, he wasn't ready for the calf kicks. And this is exactly what Dustin Poirier had done. A new strategy Conor hadn't seen before. And this was the demise, destroying the leg. And after that, he could actually take him down with a knockout. So understand that the greatest generals, the most creative strategists, stand out not because they have more knowledge, but because they're able when necessary to drop that knowledge. They're willing to disregard everything they'd learned previously and do something new in that moment. Knowledge and experience have their limitations. We need this present moment and this is where creativity is sparked and opportunities are seized. No amount of thinking in advance can prepare you for the chaos of life, what it's going to bring. There's really infinite possibilities that could pop up out of nowhere and there's no exact book that can prepare you for one exact situation. Never take it for granted that your past successes will continue into the future and actually your past successes are probably going to be your biggest obstacle because every battle, every war is different and you cannot assume what worked last time is going to work again today. You must cut yourself loose from the past, open your eyes to the present because your tendency to fight the last war may mean that this is your final war. And this is strategy two, do not fight the last war. You are your own worst enemy. You waste precious time dreaming of the future instead of engaging in the present. Since nothing seems urgent, you're only half involved. And the only way to change that is through action and outside pressure. So you should put yourself in situations where you have too much at stake to waste time or resources. If you can't afford to lose, you won't. In 1504, an ambitious 19-year-old Spaniard named Hernan Cortez gave up his studies in law and sailed for the countries and colonies in the New World. And over the years, he gradually rose through the ranks, being a great warrior. And in 1518, he finally was named the leader of an expedition who were to find out what happened to earlier explorers to Mexico. He was told to go and find some gold and lay the groundwork for the country's conquest of the Aztecs. So he kicked off this expedition, and over the next few months, he put his plans to work. He forged alliances with local tribes who hated the Aztecs, and it slowly became clear that he was planning on conquering Mexico. Everyone thought he was bloody crazy. He's got, he's got 500 blokes, mm. and he wants to take on Mexico, which is a country of 500,000. So just on pure numbers alone, he's up against it. Mate, these the aren't just a normal 500,000 people. Some of them were known as fierce warriors, and they used to eat the prisoners' flesh, and they actually wear their skin as trophies. So if you imagine if you're part of these 500 men, you've got these 500,000 other people and your, your leader there wants to go and battle them. And if you lose, you're going to end up having your flesh eaten and they're going to be wearing your skin um, as some sick, you know, fetish thing with their partners. <laughs> Speculating there, but go on, Astro. I would, yeah, yeah, it probably makes sense, yeah. Cortez was looking to build strong enough rapport with the rest of his men so they joined him in this wild battle. But one Spaniard sailor begged for mercy because he confessed there was a plot to steal a ship and return to Cuba the next evening. Cortez says this is a pretty important moment. He could, you know, this was like a pivotal part of his journey. He could, you know, expel this guy, capture this guy, imprison this guy. But he knew that this one guy wasn't it. He Everyone's knew that there thinking, was going to be more. Thinking, Everyone's thinking, I'm going I'm to take a boat and get the hell out of here. So the job now of Cortez was to try and get everyone up for battle, up to take on these 500,000 people. So the first thing he did, he got the conspirators and the two ringleaders who were part of this person trying to flee the area, they were all hung. They were all killed. So that was the first thing he did. Secondly, he bribed his pilots to bore holes in all of their ships 
and then just tell everyone, hey, the worms got to all of our ships. Worms. Yeah, they had holes in the ships. Oh, they had <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, obviously uh, it caught on because every ship went down. That's a lot of worms. It just struck so swiftly in, in one night. But from that moment, right, the, the, the ships were done and there was no backing out. There's no getting going home to your warm, cozy families. You were now just in the Mex- land of Mexico. They knew that there was now no turning back. And the men thought, okay, what are the options here? We can take down Cortez because he's really screwed us over here so we can give him a bit of payback and, and slit his throat or something. But then they realized, okay, we've got no boats. We've got no leader. We've got hostile Mexican warriors coming from all angles. It's probably better if we've got Cortez on our side for this. So their only option was really to follow Cortez and follow him in, in his attack on Mexico. And two years later, after this destruction of the ships, with the help of those 500 men and other allies he'd gained along the way, Cortez's army laid siege and conquered the Aztec Empire. So they conquered a mammoth task, 500 men taking down an army of 500,000. This is because they deployed Strategy 4, which we're about to cover. Create a sense of urgency and desperation, the death ground strategy. On the night of the conspiracy, Cortez, he had to think fast. He had to think, okay, what's the root of this problem I'm facing? It's not that the numbers are against me. It's not that these wild flesh-eating, skin-wearing people are against me. Actually, the biggest enemy here is the ships in the harbor. Mm. Yeah, it's a not an obvious, a self-evident thing. It was because these ships in the harbor were drawing all of his soldiers to be divided in heart and mind. They were thinking about the wrong things. They were thinking about their wives, their dreams of going back with a little bit of gold that plucked up from the, the island. And their mind was constantly on the escape route back home. So these ships in the harbor, they were more than just ships just for transportation. They represented the freedom to leave and get out of there. They saw the ships as insurance. Now, you obviously think sometimes insurance is good. Having a fallback option is a good idea. But in this case, it was actually a curse Mm. because it meant that their mind wasn't focused on the task at hand, the mammoth task at hand. So we've got all we've all got our own metaphorical ships that's just stopping us from conquering our metaphorical Mexico. And we get to think that whatever this insurance that we're hanging in the background, it might be what's dividing us. You might be thinking and telling yourself, Oh, it's just giving me options and if things go wrong. But sometimes you need to run your ships aground, burn them, and leave yourself with just one option, and that is to succeed or die. Make the burning of your ships as real as possible. Get out of your safety net. And sometimes you have this little bit of desperation. You can use that to get anywhere you want. Uh, Tony Robbins always talks about this, the burn the boat strategy. Often, you know, the quit the job. If you if you quit the job, it leaves you with that hunger in the belly. You've got to make whatever it is, your side project, your new business, your new attempts, they have to work because you've got no safety net. You've burnt the boats. I always, you always hear burn the boats. It turns mm. out it's not burn the boats. It's fake worm drill hole in the boats. <laughs> Probably doesn't roll off the tongue as, as well. Yeah, if you just yeah. say drill holes in the bottom of the boats and let them sink yeah. and pretend it was worms. No, the fire. The fire. Burn the boats. <laughs> burn the boats sounds better. Fire yeah. works a lot better. <laughs> but this is literally Tony Robbins' big pitch. When you when you see hear someone quit their job to do something after seeing Tony Robbins, it's because this story that he rips out on him. I think it can come in different ways. I think sometimes when an opportunity comes towards you and you're a bit nervous to, to go for it, sometimes a burning the boat strategy might be as simple as just a quick yes, just saying yes to it, the presentation, whatever it might be. And that way you're, you're locked in. You have to do it. And now you, know, you go home, there's no way of getting out of whatever opportunity you've signed up for. You might have brilliant ideas. You might have these unbeatable strategies 
It doesn't mean much if the group that you lead and that you depend on uh, to execute your plans, they're unresponsive and uncreative. And if its members always put their own personal agendas before what your vision might be, all these ideas and grand intelligence means jack shit. So you must learn the lesson of the war. It is the structure of the army. It's the chain of command and the relationship of the parts of the whole that will give your strategies force. The problem in leading any group is that people inevitably have their own agendas. If you're too authoritarian, they'll resent you and rebel in silent ways. If you're too easygoing, they'll revert to their natural selfishness and you're going to lose control. So you have to create a chain of command in which people do not feel constrained by your influence, yet follow your lead. You need to put the right people in the right places, people who will enact the spirit of your ideas without being automatons. You need to make commands clear and inspiring, focusing your attention on the team, not the leader. You need to create a sense of participation, but not falling victim to groupthink. And you need to make yourself look like the paragon of fairness without ever relinquishing unity of command. Mm. So let's zoom back to World War One in August 1914. At this stage, all along the Western Front, the British and French were caught in this deadly stalemate against the Germans. Now, the Germans, they were kicking ass. They were badly beating the Russians. There was one spot, which was Turkey, which was an ally of Germany's. And this was a very key location in the context of the war because it led to Istanbul. And this was the gateway for the Allies to taking back the war. If the Allies could take Germany from the southeast, dividing its armies and weakening its ability to fight on the Western Front... They could also have a clear supply line with Russia, which meant victory in Gallipoli would change the entire course of World War I. So this plan was approved. And in 1915, General Sir Ian Hamilton, he was named leader of the campaign. Now, he was pretty good himself. At 62, he was an able strategist and experienced commander. So he was the orchestrator on how to do it. And he had a few people below his chain of command. So second on one of the ships, which is just offshore where they were meant to land, is... Frederick Stopford, and then finally you got the person who's going to lead the boys into the trenches, Frederick Hammersley, and he was to take on the smaller boats, I guess, to actually arrive on the shore of Gallipoli, and they were leading the 11th Division. There was a bit of an overarching plan. They saw there was these big hills, and they wanted to make sure that their side got to the hills before the Turks. The problem was everybody had their own ideas and their own agendas. You've got Hamilton, you've got Stopford, you've got Hammersley, it was sort of clear who was in charge, but at the same time, it wasn't really clear because everybody had their own different bits. And another big problem was Old Stopford was a bit of a was a bit of a no hoper. He wasn't really someone who had been in the heat of battle before. He was saying things like, "Let's send reinforcements if possible," but he should have said, "Let's send reinforcements as soon as possible." Things like that. He was saying, "Let's make our way to the hills," but he didn't say, "Let's just fucking go for it, lads." Mm. He was he was he was pretty weak in all honesty. He wasn't really the leader, but at the same time, he was kind of the middleman between the real leaders and the troops. Now, Hamilton was pretty smart. He'd planned a whole bunch of stuff, and if everything was perfectly to what he you know envisaged in his mind, it might not have been much of an issue what the chain of command was here. But there were some big problems because the maps were inaccurate. His troops landed in the wrong places. The beach were much narrower than expected. And worst of all, the Turks fought back unexpectedly, fiercely, and well. So on the first day, all of them landed, 70,000 men, and they were unable to advance beyond the beaches. And that wasn't because there was an equal and opposite force pushing them. It was actually just a a uh, handful of Turks on the hills um, waiting to, to fend them off. It was because all of the men didn't have clear and precise orders to actually take the hill immediately after occupying the beach. So because they were just chilling there, pretty happy with themselves, just being on the beach, the Turks were able to amass the army in the right location 
And because of that, there was this fierce battle between them after the Turks were in place. And of course, we all know it, four months later, the Allies, they gave up on Gallipoli. So strategy of war number five is the command and control strategy, something that clearly they didn't get, get right in this case. In planning for the invasion, the big dog Hamilton, he'd thought of everything. He understood the need for surprise. He'd mastered the logistical details of the assault. He'd prepared for a whole bunch of unexpected contingencies for the battle, but he ignored the things that were closest to him. He ignored the chain of command. He ignored the circuit of communication by which orders, information, and decisions were meant to flow back and forth. He'd failed to adapt to Stopford. He didn't think Stopford was going to be the biggest issue in executing all his plans. It's because Stopford, he was a bit terrified of risk. He was a bit of a yes-man and he wasn't giving clear and precise orders down the line. And also below him, there were the colonels and officers and soldiers who had no leadership above them. They were left wandering on the sand on the beach, just like lost ants. So vagueness at the top turned into confusion and lethargy at the bottom. The chain of command was broken and Gallipoli was lost. When a failure like this happens, when this golden opportunity slips through your fingers, you naturally look for a cause. Maybe you blame the incompetent officers, faulty technology, flawed intelligence. But that is to look at the world backward and ensures that you're going to fail again next time. What determines your failure or your success is your style of leadership and the chain of command that you design. If your orders are vague and half-hearted, by the time they reach the field, they're going to be meaningless. A proper chain of command and the control it brings you is not an accident. It's your creation and it's a work of art that requires constant attention and care. And uh, I think a lot of people, like it's not something that you probably focus on until you read a story like this, but if you ignore it, you're going to do so at your own peril. Yeah, it's quite, if, you think, if, you, if you've got multiple layers of management, you give one person what you think is clear instructions, they give the person below them some instructions, the person below them some instructions. If you haven't designed that chain properly mm. and you haven't thought about the way you're communicating this, then by the time it gets two or three layers down, it's a completely different message. Yeah, I think we've, uh, we've learned this lesson. Probably I've made mistakes more than you in uh, managing some outsources. We're very lucky now. We've got someone, Mariella, who's an absolute superstar doing helping us out with a lot of things. But before her, we had a few people that um, we just let go, just go astray a fair bit because there's no precise, clear communication from us all the way down. I, I, you shouldn't take full blame. I, I would have thought it was implied for Daniel, the first bloke, not to post like ads about penis enlargement and stuff on our website. I would have thought that was assumed, but maybe we had to be clear in our communication on that one. Yeah, do, not, do not post... <laughs> Things about penises on our website, Daniel. <laughs> this is what, yeah. But there was no, pre- there was no precision, so you should take some responsibility. You'll take a little bit of that, maybe. Now more than ever, effective leadership requires a deft and subtle touch. Firstly, we've grown distrustful of authority, and secondly, almost all of us imagine ourselves to be the authority in our own right. We all think we're the officers, not the foot soldiers. So feeling our need to assert ourselves, often we're putting our own interests ahead of the team, which means the whole group unity is pretty fragile and easy to crack. Mm, So just focusing on the chain of command, there's a few different ways you can do it. I think some people, your tendency might to just give more power to the group. Mm. You become democratic, you sit everyone down in a big meeting and you get everyone to put up their hand and vote for what they want to do, um, like you have on a lot of boards and their decisions. But bureaucracy leads to one of the lessons of war, and that is divided leadership is a recipe for disaster and it's the cause of the greatest military defeats in history. 
if you think about somebody who went the other way, they didn't go the democratic approach to leadership. They went the direct authoritarian, you know, chain of command. Was Steve Jobs? He didn't bother with market research groups and bringing in fancy consultants and and trying to get everybody's opinion. He said, "Here's the call. Here's the decision. This is it. This is what we're doing. Here's the strategy, and then let's get to work." Yeah, he was definitely clear and precise. You can also go the other direction. This is like decentralizing commands. This can also work. So if you say if you delegate authority right down the line and give people autonomy and create more and more leaders at the lower levels, it can lead to a different result. So think about, say, if some of the people who landed on the beach of Gallipoli, they could use a bit of their common sense and judgment based on where they landed. They might have thought, what the hell are we doing on the beach here, boys? Let's just go (laughs) up and take that hill. Let's figure that out and um, we can win the war. But because they were told you need to follow orders the whole way through and the chain of command here was from the beach to the middle boat and back to the other boat where Hamilton was and back and forth and all this time they lost was precious and this is one of the reasons they lost the war. I shouldn't say lose the war, they lost the battle but won the war which is another strategy maybe (laughs) comes up later. So that is strategy number five of war. You need to remember the command and control strategy. The secret to motivating people and maintaining their morale is to get them to think less about themselves and more about the group. Involve them in a cause, a crusade against the hated enemy. Make them see their survival is tied to the success of the army as a whole. Lead from the front. Let your soldiers see you in the trenches making sacrifices for the cause. That will fill them with the desire to emulate and please you because a motivated army can work wonders, making up for any lack of material resources. And here we're talking about strategy number seven, transform your war into a crusade. Now, in 1931, a 23-year-old Lyndon Baines Johnson, he was offered secretary to Richard Kleberg, who was a newly elected congressman. So Johnson, he was young, he was a high school debating teacher, but he worked on political campaigns and was clearly a man of ambition who wanted to go up the ranks. What he did was he got two debating students to help him out. Uh, He paid them ridiculously low. But it became clear that even with this almost minuscule pay that Johnson planned to work them to the, to the absolute bone, he wanted to work them beyond their human limit. He was pushing them to do 18 or 20 hours a day. A lot of the time, was just answering mail, sending handwritten letters, and that's bloody long days for a, for a poor high school student. Yeah, so he's getting a lot of resources out of these two young kids. And you get to think, you're not paying these two kids <laughs> a lot of money, so what's getting them to work so hard? And the most important reason for how hard they were willing to work was that Johnson, he still worked harder than them. So when they trudged into the office at five in the morning to start a big long day's work, they'd rock up and they'd see the lights were already on and that was because Johnson was already hard at work. He was also the last to leave. He never asked employees to do things that he wouldn't do himself and his energy was so intense and boundless and contagious and they were thinking, how can we let down such a man who's working so bloody hard? So you think about it, between these three men, they're probably doing the work of a team of 10. And Johnson, obviously a very hard worker, uh, rose through the ranks of politics and eventually became US president. He was intensely ambitious as a young man. He didn't have money. He didn't have connections at first, but he did understand human psychology. He knew that by working harder than his staff and by having people see him do what he did, they would think that you know, failing to match him makes them feel a little bit guilty, makes them feel a little bit selfish. So they thought, if we've got a leader who's stepping up like this, then we need to step up to match it. By showing how much of his own time and effort he was willing to sacrifice, he'd earn their respect. 
and once he had that respect, even when he was a harsh, a bit of an arsehole, he became an effective motivator, making his followers feel that if they weren't just put in the same hard yards as, as he was, they were going to be disappointing him. You need to understand that morale is contagious. You as the leader, you set the tone. If you're asking for sacrifices that you're not willing to make yourself, your troops are going to go grow pretty resentful. They're not going to do stuff for you. At the same time, if you act too nice, coddle them too much, show a little bit too much concern for their well-being, if you say, it's all right, boys, sleep until 5.30 today, not yeah. 5, then you're going to drain that sort of that tension. You're going to be too nice uh, and they're going to sort of lose that fire in the belly that they need to please you. Man, there's this huge focus right now on, on well-being. This really just flies in the, <laughs> in the face of uh, pretty much every office just trying to tell everyone to just chill out a bit and yeah. be nice and, and caring of yourself. I'll bring, I'll bring Elon Musk in because I know you want to at some point. Thanks, that he's, mate. He, uh, you know, There's always those stories. He's working at 3 a.m. He'll pull the mattress out from under his desk, have a quick half-hour power nap and then get straight back to it. Yeah, well, that's that's exactly it. And his, uh, his strategy, he says in the job applications, nobody ever changed the world work in 40-hour weeks. <laughs> And so people, uh, people are weirdly uh, attracted to that. And yeah, when they go in, they know what the standard is and they are letting the company and Elon down if you're probably not working 70 or 80 hour a week. So, and they're probably per hour, not getting paid a hell of a lot. And there's a lot of news articles at the moment, you know, going around saying, you know, Elon, that the work culture is toxic and it's too much of an intense environment and people are pushed to their limits. But at the same time, as you say, if you want to get to Mars, there's... There's some sacrifices yeah, needed. Well, yeah, forty-hour weeks aren't going to get you to Mars. <laughs> no. Simple as that, is it? <laughs> exactly. We've got another story here in April nineteen seven. In April, not nineteen seventy-six. April seventeen ninety-six. Another person you might have heard of, Napoleon Bonaparte, who was named the commander of the French forces fighting the Austrians in Italy. Many of the officers thought his appointment to the role of big dog was a bit of a joke. They saw him as too short, too young, too inexperienced, too badly groomed. He must have smelt a bit, mustn't mm. have bathed enough. And the soldiers were pretty resistant to this new authority coming in and thinking, why are we going to work for this bloke? And Napoleon, he would have smelt that. He would have knew that everyone he commanded didn't think much of him. They thought he was young and, and just wasn't up for the task. And uh, he got his opportunity to show something different. And this happened in May 10, which is about a month after being appointed. And his weary forces came to the bridge of Lodi. Now, this was over the river Vada. And despite this uphill struggle with the troops, he had the Austrians in retreat. But they had to take the bridge. And this was a, a place where they needed to make their stand. We're at the point of this absolutely crucial point of this battle here. People coming from either side... Ultimately, they realize that whoever takes this bridge is ultimately going to take the battle. But at the same time, taking the bridge was going to be costly. There was going to be injuries, probably deaths, uh, some big losses coming. And understandably, some of the French troops were hanging back a bit thinking, is this going to be worth it? Is the reward of taking the bridge going to be worth the cost involved? But at the same time as they're taking a backward step, they see the crazy old Napoleon striding out ahead of them on the horse. Normally, you know, you've got the leader who's just sort of giving commands. He's just out the front of the group, parading like a wild man on his horse, ready to slit some Austrian throats. He delivered this stirring speech, then launched his grenadiers at the Austrian lines. Because if you think about when you're running down there, it's quite serious. It's very hard for us to imagine what war used to be like. If you're carrying a sword, running towards mm. an enemy, they've got swords. <laughs> you, you look for any excuse to stop Oh definitely yeah And if you just glance to your right You've got this wild Napoleon Who's <laughs> 10 metres of heart uh, Like off the movies essentially But in, in real life apparently So with this wild man Leading them in their charge The French took the bridge 
And after his relatively minor operation, Napoleon's troops saw him as a completely different man. No longer did they see a, a short, smelly, inexperienced young bloke. They saw a true leader. Yeah, and then the rest is history because after this first battle that he won, uh, he went on and did a lot much more with his career and probably a lot of it resting on the reputation he developed as a human being. So this strategy number seven, transform your war into crusade, it's all about morale and it's all about people management. You need to understand that humans are selfish by nature. Our thoughts in any situation are going to revolve around our own interests, thinking how will this affect me or how will this help me? And our ability to disguise this is always a problem for the leader because the leader, well, you might say something nice on the front, ultimately deep down, you're always thinking about how can I knock off early today? How can I mm. go and go home to a nice bed rather than sleep under my desk like Elon? Yeah, <laughs> that's what you're up against. And we've got the opportunity here to learn from history's greatest motivators. The way to get soldiers to work together and maintain morale is to make them feel part of a group that's worth fighting for and they're going up against a worthy cause. You need to find a way to distract them from their own interests and satisfy their human need to feel part of something bigger than they are. So that brings us to the end of, of part one of our three-part series on the 33 strategies of war. And we covered the five strategies here that were all around aggressive war. And this is really important because life, it can be endless battle and conflict and you cannot fight effectively if you cannot identify enemies and identify situations where you're in war and then you can pull these strategies that we're talking about to help you with any situation that involves conflict. I'm sure you can recognize that war is no longer just the realm for armies and nations fighting against each other. I'm sure you can see the how war relates to you in everyday life as well. Where a lot of our strategies today we covered had an element of aggression and being on the offensive. The next episode, watch out for, we're going to be talking about defensive strategies of war. Mm-hmm.